Some of you may remember that in February of 2014, Bill Nye, the science guy, accepted an invitation to debate Ken Ham, a young earth creationist at the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. Bill Nye, this person over here, is a Cornell-educated mechanical engineer who has gained notoriety through his work as a communicator and advocate of science through television shows like Bill Nye the Science Guy and Bill Nye Saves the World. In addition to being the CEO of the Planetary Society, a nonprofit foundation involved in engineering projects related to astronomy and space exploration, Nye is a fellow for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Another nonprofit whose aim is to promote scientific inquiry, critical investigation, and the use of reason in examining controversial and extraordinary claims. Ken Ham, over here, Ken Ham is a trained environmental biologist who has gained notoriety as the founder of Answers in Genesis, a fundamentalist Christian organization that teaches the events of Genesis as literal history. In addition to the Creation Museum, which hosted the debate, Ham's Answers in Genesis organization also owns and operates the Ark Encounter, a theme park with a full-size representation of Noah's Ark built according to the, the dimensions given in the Bible. It is the largest timber frame structure in the world, and it came with an initial uh, construction cost of over $100 million dollars. Tickets to the debate between Nye and Ham sold out in minutes. Over 70 media credentials were distributed for the event. Three million people viewed the event live over the internet. C-SPAN replayed the entire debate on television two weeks later. And the videos of their debate that have been uploaded to YouTube have been viewed 15 million times in the last four years. People cared about this debate when it happened. People are still clearly interested in this conversation. People want to know that their side was correctly represented and su successfully defended. If nothing else, we want to know who wins. We want to know which side is the most right. When I read this story, when I hear this narrative, of the flood and Noah and the ark, I have to wonder, is that why this story is here? So that we can choose sides. Tens of millions of views, hundreds of millions of dollars, millions of hours devoted to watching and research and arguing and defending our different sides. Is this why the story of Noah has been preserved and passed down so that we can determine whose argument has the highest degree of fidelity to fact. I'm not sure it is. I think we may be missing something. I think there may be something we are not remembering correctly about this story. One of the reasons I can say that is because I don't find either side of their argument Bill Nye and Ken Ham, this debate, to be all that helpful. Anytime we talk about a story like this, we should begin with the premise that any story 
that people chose to tell and retell and pass down through generations, any story that people chose to write down and preserve and protect, any story that people chose to honor and analyze and revere, any story that receives that kind of attention and that kind of effort for thousands of years does so because people have found it to be helpful. So if we take a story like Noah and the flood and apply a strictly scientific argument that dismisses it as an impossible and irrelevant fantasy, I don't find that interpretation helpful. Similarly, when young earth creationists tell me the only way to faithfully embrace the story of Noah and the flood is as a literal and historical fact, I don't find that to be a helpful interpretation either. How do either one of these arguments help me get through the day? How do either of those interpretations put me in better relationship to the source of the universe or to my next door neighbor? They're not helpful interpretations. They're not helpful arguments. There is something missing from this debate. There is something that we are not remembering correctly about this story. The truth is, when the story of Noah and the flood was first told, English-speaking mechanical engineers didn't even exist. When the oral tradition of Noah and the flood was first compiled and written down to be preserved and passed on to us, there was no such thing as a Christian creationist. There was no such thing as a Christian. The story of Noah has been told retold, written down, preserved, interpreted, and passed to us for thousands of years by the Jews, the people that wrote 99% of the Bible. So we should logically ask the question, what do the Jews do with the story of Noah and the flood? Specifically, what do they do with the verses that we heard this morning? And to begin to answer that question, we need to remember one of the traditional ways that our Jewish sisters and brothers have wrestled with the scriptures. It's an approach or interpreted framework known as partis. Everybody say partis. Now that is not a Hebraic word. That is just an acronym. But don't worry, we're going to learn a lot of Hebraic words this morning. And the first one is the first letter of partis, and it's peshat. So everybody say peshat. It's a fun word to say. You don't always get to say words that have the apostrophe right after the first letter. I like that. Peshat. Peshat means surface. It means what happened. We read or hear a story and we decide what happened. What is the explicit or apparent reality of the story? When someone asks us to tell them the story, like a child, for instance, the peshat is what we recount. In the case of Noah and the flood, we might determine the peshat is something along the lines of God was angry with how violent and corrupt humanity had become, so God decided to flood the world, wipe everything out, and start over, except for Noah and his family because they were good. So God warned them to build an ark to survive the flood and to gather up some of every animal on a boat in order to repopulate the earth. The floods came, lasted 40 days and 40 nights. We always remember that detail. And then Noah sent out a dove to see if land had reappeared, and the dove brought back an olive branch. We like that detail too. So they all got off the boat and lived happily ever after. Now, 
that's not a very good or accurate Peshat. There are not only errors in that recounting of what happened, there's also a great deal missing. The tragic reality, however, is that we don't just pass on our sketchy and incomplete Peshat interpretations to our kids when they ask. These bad foundations are also where we usually draw lines and decide to debate. Our surface interpretations are where most of the noise of our faith, our religion, our denominations exist. We argue with each other and we dismiss each other and we excommunicate each other and we condemn each other all over Peshat. We debate whether or not the story of Noah and his ark could have literally happened and millions tune in to watch. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that we don't have to settle. There's so much more. There is more to this story. There is depth beyond the surface. For our Jewish sisters and brothers, the next layer of meaning in a biblical story is found in Remez. Everybody say Remez. We talk about Remez a lot around here, so you might have heard that word before, but Remez just means hints. Remez are the directional arrows within a story that point to another story. It allows us to read between the lines. And the story of Noah and the flood is full of Remez. Dinah gave us an example last week when she taught us that the story of Noah is structured to point back to the creation poems. In Genesis 1, for example, the Ruach, or the breath of God, hovers over the deep in creation. In the verses that we heard this morning in Genesis 8, God sends that very same Ruach, that very same breath of God, to blow over the waters of the flood and cause them to recede. That's a remez. The story of Noah and the flood is not just a single thread. It is a thread weaved in and out and among thousands of other threads to form an intricately connected and beautiful tapestry. Noah is a thread of Ramez connectively woven into the thread of Adam. Both Adam and Noah are figures that represent all of humankind. Both Adam and Noah are surrounded by God's creation. Adam in a garden. Noah in an ark. Both Adam and Noah have profoundly direct relationships with God. Both Adam and Noah are free. They are given freedom to choose how they will walk their relationship with God out. Both Adam and Noah ultimately use that freedom in ways that fracture the relationship. And in the face of that fractured relationship, both Adam and Noah experience a God that is not only unlike them, but unlike any of the other gods in the ancient Near East. Both Adam and Noah experience a God whose greatest fidelity is not to the facts, but to relationship. Both Adam and Noah experience a God who is unwilling to let a fractured relationship stay fractured. Now, 
When we recognize a remez like this, like the one of Noah and Adam, we are making connections and discovering meaning that moves us into the third layer of Pardis, and that third layer is drosh. Everybody say drosh. Drosh means to inquire, to seek, to interpret meaning that is not explicit when you read the story. And you're probably more familiar with the word drosh than you realize, because drosh is connected to the Hebrew word that we hear a lot, midrash. Although here in South Texas, we say midrash. Okay, midrash, midrash, same thing. And midrash is the act of interpretation. When we say midrash, we wrestle with the meaning of the story that is beneath the surface. Now, for thousands of years, those who have gone before us have done the work of drosh in the story of Noah and the flood. Their voices tell us that what we heard this morning is the turning point in this story. They tell us that the first verse of chapter 8 is where mercy triumphs over judgment. But God remembered Noah. And God sent the wind to blow over all the earth, and the waters began to subside. God remembered Noah. The Hebraic word which is translated here as remembered is the word zakar. Everybody say zakar. Zakar means something different than we usually think of when we think of remembering. As modern English speakers, the word remembered usually implies to us that something was forgotten. Most of the time, we perceive the actions of forgetting and remembering as accidental. We feel lucky when we remember and upset when we forget. But that's not what zakar means at all. Biblical scholar John Goldengay points out that zakar actually means to be mindful of something or someone. Similarly, in biblical Hebrew, forgetting is not accidental. It is the deliberate act of refusing to be mindful of something or someone. In the Bible, remembering and forgetting are not accidental at all. It's not about accidentally forgetting something and then being lucky enough to remember it. This kind of forgetting and remembering is not bound to the past. It is an intentional act of the present. In the Bible, one can even forget or remember the future. Deliberate acts of focus and intentionality. This God remembers Noah. This God deliberately and intentionally focuses on Noah. And that, my friends, is not normal. Prior to this line, but God remembered Noah, everything else in this story was normal. The first part of this story would have been extremely familiar in the ancient Near East. Most ancient cultures in that region had narratives of angry and disappointed gods wiping out creation with floodwaters. Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann says, Floods have no memory. Floods destroy all memory and set creation in utter amnesia. Every ancient person who had heard an angry God brings a flood story before would have been nodding their heads in recognition up to this point in the story. Yeah, yeah, I've heard this one before. God was angry, didn't like what we had done with ourselves, brought a flood to wipe it all out and start over. But then God remembered Noah. 
and the needle scratches off the ancient Near East record. Wait, what? What do you mean God remembered Noah? That's a new twist. That's not something I've heard before. This story, this God is different. Before the words, but God remembered Noah, the surface meaning of this story was something along the lines of, don't be too bad or too violent or too sinful, because if you do, the gods will get angry and wipe everything out. At best, our surface interpretation might be to try to look good like Noah so that we can get our tickets punched and get our behinds on the boat. But now... There's meaning beyond the surface. Now, the flood will not have its way. Brueggemann writes, The only thing the waters of chaos and death do not cut through is the commitment of God to creation. This God will not be brainwashed by the flood. This God remembers. Now, friends, We could spend days droshing the story of Noah and the flood. The truth is we have only just begun. Our forebears have spent lifetimes mining the depths of meaning found in this story. But we need to grab that final word of the PARDIS acronym, and that word is SOD. Everybody say SOD. SOD means the secret, the mystery, the mystical meaning. And to even hint at the sowed, we have to do all the work beforehand. We have to do the Bashat work. We have to do the Ramez work and the Drosh work. But not just that. To start to get at the sowed, you also have to have some divine assistance. You have to have some help. What we would call the spirit. Truth is, I can't tell you what the sowed of this story is for you. The sowed, the mystery, is dynamic. It moves and changes and grows as our journey unfolds. The secrets of Noah and the flood are different things to different people at different times. And when I was a child, the mystery seemed to exist in the idea that God could pull off the miracles of gathering all the animals into a boat or flooding the whole world. These days, I'm much more mystified by a God who, who provides a story like this for us. A story that asks us if we can identify with our world being washed away by forces beyond our control. A story that asks us, have we ever felt forgotten? A story that asks us, Will we remember? In ways that are beyond me, this ancient story from a different culture on a different continent in a different language can somehow drop big, spacious questions like that right in the middle of my life, right here, right now. And that is a mystery to me. That is sold. I can't quite grasp it. I can't explain it, and I wouldn't want to make you wait around while I tried. You know, most of the verses of Noah's story that we heard this morning actually have to do with waiting. When we picked up the story this morning, Noah and his family had already built the ark 
weathered the storms, and survived the flood. Now they are on the ark, and the rains have stopped, and they're waiting for whatever comes next. Can you imagine being on such an ark? How badly would you want off that boat? According to the story, they are over 200 days into this horrifying cruise. Now, I would prefer to, have, to never feed a cobra, to never clean up after an elephant. So I sure wouldn't want to do it for 200 days in a row. I would be ready for the new world. I'd be ready for whatever comes when we get off that boat. But Noah and his family wait. That which is passing away has gone, but that which is coming has not yet arrived. That is the space in which they find themselves. Father Richard Rohr describes this waiting as liminal space. Liminal is just a Latin word that means threshold, the place of entering in. It's the time between what was and what is next. It's the place of transition, of waiting, of not knowing. It's the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart and a bigger world is revealed. Right there, in that liminal space, rests Noah and his family and all of creation. The story not only, this story not only asks us if we can be faithful in the face of a coming flood, it also asks if we can be faithful in the middle of nothing, in waiting, in liminal space where we can't see the horizon or even know if one will ever rise. Will we remember? Will we deliberately focus upon God even when God seems absent? Will we, like Noah, see God's instructions as promises of the life that is yet to come? My answer, maybe. I think I'm okay in a flood that I can be faithful when it's all coming apart, but I'm not so sure I'm that good in liminal space. That space between, that seems much more difficult to me. I don't really care for not knowing. I prefer to know so I can get to work on whatever is next. I like to determine what is the right side and get myself on it, much like my brothers Bill Nye and Ken Ham. Now, I need you to know that it is not my intention to cast these gentlemen as villains or even as fools who have missed it. My impression of both of these men is that they are both sincere individuals who earnestly believe that their efforts are for the betterment of those around them, and, and they might even be right. For all I know, they may be familiar with Pardis, and they may be plumbing the depths of Genesis with their friends and families. It's possible that their debate was just an opportunity to rally awareness and fundraising around a polarizing issue. After all, exploring space is expensive and ARC theme parks don't build themselves. <laughs> but I can't help but wonder what it would look like if instead of debating which side is the most right on the surface, 
we chose to rest in the liminal space and allow the volume of voices and divinity deep within this story to speak to us. What if there were well-organized nonprofits dedicating to the intentional work of remembering? What if hundreds of millions of dollars were put into dialogues around faithfulness and patience and transformation? What if instead of expeditions to discover the archaeological evidence of Noah's Ark, we funded expeditions to remember the marginalized people we too often and too easily forget? How many views would that get on YouTube? What would that even look like? It's a mystery. It's a horizon we cannot yet see. But it sure sounds like a future worth remembering. And the good news is, even if we refuse to be deliberately mindful of such a future, this God, the God of Noah, remembers. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord God, sovereign of the universe, who by your instructions and commandments offers us the promises of life, whether we are facing floods or stagnant and stale arcs. We remember that you are the God of the flood. We remember that you are the God of waiting, of liminal space. We remember that you are in all of it. We are never alone and you never forget. We rejoice that you are the God of remembering through the storms, through the flood, through the waiting. You have proven your memory and your love over and over again. By your spirit, we ask that we may all grow in our ability to be deliberate and intentional in our remembering. We ask and we remember in the name of our rabbi, our brother, and our savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.